absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's a worthy goal. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that's what we pursue here on Faith Is. Welcome to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. And this is the place where faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, among a lot of other things as well. But we start there because we want to have that kind of confidence in God. And if we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, it will be much more likely that we will believe what he says and do what he says. Well, today we're going to take a look at a somewhat familiar story to a lot of people. It may not be familiar to everyone, but the really interesting thing to me is we are going to talk about what may very well be the most chilling statement in the entire Bible. I guess we could have a lot of conversations about what is the most chilling, but this one, I'm telling you, this one this one will get to you. And, and not only that, we're going to also talk about what may be the most chilling realization that comes out of the Bible. Unbelievable when we th- stop to think about this most chilling statement and even more, a chilling response or a realization on the part of people. Well, let's get started on that. I, so I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We're a regular church with, um, uh, should I say, irregular people? Well, we're just as irregular as the people you know. We are no better than and hopefully not as bad as some of the people you know. We don't pretend to be perfect, but we press toward the mark the high calling that God has given us. And we work at accomplishing the things God has called us to accomplish. And we believe God when he says something is so. And we want to be the kind of people here that represent God well to the people that we encounter day in and day out. So we're just like you. We're people that have high aspirations, that we can live up to God's confidence in in us, And we want to um, demonstrate the kind of faith in God that I'm calling absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, today we're going to look at another parable of Jesus, and I really like the parables. They're one of my favorite portions of Scripture to study. There's a lot of them, and I don't know that I have a favorite one, but I sure do like looking at them. And most commonly, this parable we're going to study is titled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. And it's a quite compelling story, quite interesting, well worth our time to consider. So I want us to take a look, and we've got a lot to consider on this. Hopefully, we'll get through the parable and still have time, because I've been thinking again. And uh, I not only came up with 10 things, I think, because I've been thinking this week, I guess, but I have 10 things plus one. So hopefully we'll get to that toward the end of the time we have together. But first, we want to spend our time on hearing what God says. That's a lot more important than what I say. So let's take a look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's found in Luke chapter 16. Whatever Bible you prefer to use, look it up in Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. I'm reading as I most often do from the Christian Standard Bible, because it's the one that helps me study. So here's what the Bible tells us, and these are the words of Jesus. 
verse 19, Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers, to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And that's the story Jesus told. He told it to his disciples. He told it to the Pharisees who were listening. He tells it to us today. And he challenges us to hear the message and to heed the admonition. So let's take a look at the story and see what we need to understand from it, and then see if we can come to grips with, and that's probably the best way to describe it, come to grips with what Jesus is trying to teach all of us. So in Luke chapter 16, Luke frames the parable as part of a conversation between or involving Jesus' disciples, and particularly points out the Pharisees. In verse 14, he describes this. It was before what we read, and it describes the Pharisees as being lovers of money. And the parable illustrates the truth of verse 16. Now, if you joined us on last week's program, you remember we talked about those. And the last verse that we worked on last week was the ending part of, of um the section in chapter 16 that dealt with the dishonest manager. And it ends with, no servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and money. Well, and then Jesus introduces these Pharisees. He calls lovers of money. And there are a few other statements that are given along through that little transitional section between the parables. And then he tells the story about the rich man and Lazarus. One of the really interesting things is that the Pharisees illustrate the truth of one of those verses we looked at last week. No servant can serve two masters. 
So remember, Jesus concluded that you can't serve God and money. And then he, in the very next breath, the way Luke tells the story, he's talking about how the Pharisees are lovers, lovers of money. So that's the context that Jesus has prepared us for, as Luke tells the story, to hear the parable that we call the rich man and Lazarus. So the scene is at the rich man's house, mostly outside because it talks about Lazarus more than the rich man, but but by implication, it's easy to understand what else is going on inside. And so we're at the rich man's house, and Lazarus is at the gate, or more correctly for us to understand it, is he was at the gate, but the way the houses were in those times, he would have been at an outer portal or maybe a vestibule. He wasn't right by the gate that opened, but he was where everybody going and coming could see him. So he that's why it's described as the gate. They would have understood all of that. We're not as familiar with the way they built their houses in those days. So that's the scene at the rich man's house. And there are two primary characters. A third one introduced later. We met Abraham. But first of all, we start with the rich man and, and Lazarus. But the rich man is described as being dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple in those days was a very expensive dye, very difficult to get. And so it was very highly prized and very expensive. So only the very wealthy wore purple. So that reason that's mentioned is to make sure we understand this rich man was a rich man, not just kind of rich, but really rich. Also interesting to make a connection here, you might have remembered that in Mark chapter 15, verse 17, Jesus, when he's on trial, was dressed in purple as part of the trial and mocking of Jesus. Here, the purple serves to make sure we understand this is a very wealthy man. It also describes him as feasting lavishly so that there's lots of food to eat. It's interesting that he is not named, and that has significance we'll get to, but we want to make sure we recognize he's only described here as a rich man. Now, tradition has given him a name, but that's separate from the way the text treats it. The text does not give him a name, and we will refer to him the way Jesus did as the rich man. And to be sure, the way it's described here, the rich man is described, his setting is described, is is sparse. It's not elaborate, but it's enough to make sure we understand that he was putting on, in his day-to-day life, an ostentious display of wealth. He had more than enough wealth to meet his needs and then some. So he was a very wealthy man. At the same time, as we begin to think about Lazarus, this very wealthy man who had more than enough apparently let Lazarus languish by his gate. And ultimately, because of the way it's described, it doesn't say this explicitly, ultimately Lazarus died apparently of starvation. He knew about Lazarus, the rich man did, but he didn't do anything to help. So we know that much so far. Let's transition now to what we know about Lazarus so we can understand the connection there with with, um, his role in the story. And remember, in these parables, Jesus is telling the story for a purpose. And so it's important for us to identify the characters carefully and the flow of what Jesus is teaching us so we can come away understanding his intent in telling the story. So we've met the rich man. Now let's meet Lazarus. Lazarus, we call by name, but we also know he was poor. 
He had no resources. He was not well. He's described as covered with sores. Some places they describe the sores as ulcers. Uh, no matter how you describe them, it was awful. There's no question about it. We'll get to a little bit more of that. And he was he was lying. It says in most English translations that he was lying there by the gate. But a little deeper examination teaches us that the way the original language describes it, it's as though Lazarus was thrown there at the gate. Well, we don't take that to mean that he was literally, somebody picked him up and threw him as much as he was placed there and he couldn't move about. He was restricted to that location and he didn't get there just because he decided to walk over there one day and, and beg at that point. But literally somebody apparently transported him there, put him there, and that's where he stayed day and night. He couldn't move about. He's the only character in a New Testament parable that is named. That's really interesting. There are lots of characters in New Testament parables, but he's the only one that's named. And that will become a little bit more um, apparent. The reason for it, I should say, will become a little bit more apparent as we go along. Uh, his name means God helps or perhaps God helped. So that gives us a little clue going in. If the people of that time had understood the, the meaning of his name, that would have helped them. It helps us going in. Hmm, God helps Lazarus. And it's symbolic, probably the name is symbolic of God's involvement and the ultimate outcome of the story, which we read and we'll discuss a little bit more deeply as we go along here. So here's Lazarus stricken with disease, uh, miserable likely because of the disease. It doesn't go into those details. Isolated because he's stuck in that place. He's unable to get around. He's unable to provide for himself. And it says that he longed for table scraps. So, so here he is. He, he has nothing to support himself, no way to do anything for himself. He's at the mercy of the people that, that see him, that pass by. He is longing for table scraps because he is so hungry. He's starving, and yet he gets none. Now, we need to understand how really significant this is. Likely the table scraps that he was talking about would have been understood by the wealthy in this story, maybe by some of the other people as well, because they knew that when they, the wealthy, ate a meal, they used bread to wipe their hands. When their hands would be dirty from handling the food, they didn't eat quite the way we do. Then they would wipe their hands on bread and throw those scraps on the floor. And those are the scraps likely that Lazarus was longing for. He was so hungry. But he didn't get even that. He didn't get even those, and, and, to you and I, we would say, that's gross. We don't want to eat that. Well, that's perfectly understandable. We should think that way. But that's how hungry he was. He he wanted even what we would call repulsive scraps off the floor. He was so hungry, he would have eaten those. Now, a few things to understand about Lazarus. And, and some people would say this is why the rich man didn't want to help him. Uh, there's no sense in the story that the rich man has given any excuse for not helping him. And we'll talk about that some more too. 
But one thing's clear, the, the disease and his plight would have made Lazarus ritually unclean. And so that would have been problematic for people in those days. They didn't want to have any contact with him because they too did not want to be ritually unclean and thereby forbidden to take place in the temple worship. Um, we also understand that um, that his disease was was really abhorrent to uh, him and to others, and and yet the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I, I want us to understand. I mean, that's that's a little bit gross for a polite conversation today, but I want us to understand what's going on here. It, it's there's some question about this. We don't know for certain. Some people would describe these dogs as being street dogs of that day that would roam the streets and were considered unclean. And, and of course, all dogs in those days would have been considered unclean. They weren't household pets like we know them. Although rich people sometimes did have dogs that they would use for hunting dogs or watch dogs. And it's possible. And this and the way the story is told makes this connection for us and makes us think carefully about this. It's possible that the dogs described here were the dogs of the rich man that he kept as watchdogs or hunting dogs. And it's possible that these dogs would have gone into where the rich man and his guests, perhaps if he had guests that day, were eating, and they would gobble up the scraps that I described a few minutes ago as being the bread that they wiped their hands with. The dogs would gather up the scraps and eat them, and then adding perhaps to Lazarus' misery, go out and lick his painful sores, which some people describe as, as they would be stinging and very painful for him. So not only was Lazarus unclean by virtue of his illness and his disease, but he would have been unclean because the dogs were around and he was in a very, very, very bad situation. Uh, I mean, for us to imagine his plight, uh, we can probably not even imagine it being as bad as it really was. So here's Lazarus and here's the rich man, a huge contrast between the two. Huge contrast. The rich man has more than enough, has a huge display of wealth day by day, and Lazarus is out by the gate in misery and starvation. So that's how the story is set up. Then both men die. And so then we begin to explore what happens after they died. And Jesus tells us a little bit about what that was all about. And the first thing we notice before we get into the specifics of each of them, the first thing we notice is that there's a stark contrast between their status. I mean, the rich man was rich and he was on top of the world. The beggar Lazarus was just in misery. But after they die, we immediately hear that Lazarus is there with Abraham by his side and the rich man is in torment. So everything's been turned upside down. Now, one of the really interesting things about this is for people in that century, for first century hearers, they would have been offended by that. They would have thought that's just awful. How could Jesus say such a thing? To be sure, there are probably some people today that would find that offensive. How could a rich man end up in torment when Lazarus is there with Abraham? Well, we know this happened. We know it turned things upside down. Um, we know people might struggle with that, but that's what we need to struggle with. That's part of the point of Jesus telling the story. You see, in New Testament times, people thought that wealth was an indicator of being right with God. 
So they would have been very upset to realize that this wealthy man now was in torment. In New Testament times, people expected a change of status in the afterlife, and by that they expected that that the righteous who had been oppressed would now rise to a higher status than their oppressors. That was normal for them. They didn't have any problem expecting that. But this inversion of status that seems to be based strictly on their economic status would have been really troublesome for them. It might be troublesome for some of us, but we need to kind of understand that context and begin to understand what's about to unfold between the rich man and Abraham with Lazarus mostly watching as, and observing what's going on. So the rich man is described as being buried after he dies. Now, being buried was very important in those days, uh, very important. Uh, if you were buried, that was, that was good. If you were not buried, that was bad. Um, it implies that uh, in the story that Lazarus was not buried, and, and we, we need to talk about that a little bit more when we get to Lazarus. The rich man ends up in Hades, and, and we don't have a lot of good understanding about how the people in those days thought of Hades. There's a lot of um, information about that, but it's not as clear to us to really understand exactly what is being described here, except we do have some key insights from the story. Hades here is a place of torment. Where Lazarus was with Abraham was not. He was comforted there. There was a divide between the two places. They couldn't cross back and forth. So we do not understand that. And, and that's about all we can really say with certainty. We need to be real careful when we read the New Testament to leap to conclusions about what they described as the afterlife. It's much more difficult to sort all of that out than people tend to realize. Certainly the Bible says there's a there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. But some of these concepts are not well described in, in the sense that we would like them to be, or even in the way we think about them today. And so this place described as, Haiti, as Hades was a place of torment and a place that, that there was some level of judgment, whether that was the final judgment the people of those days weren't quite sure. They thought maybe it was a time awaiting judgment, but clearly... The, the rich man here had been judged in some sense of that, for sure, because he was in torment and couldn't leave. The rich man also implores Abraham to uh, warn his brothers. You know, Part of what he begs for is a little water to, to cool his tongue, but when that's quickly not possible, he then begs Abraham to go warn his brothers. And, and Abraham's response is, is quite striking. Um, it doesn't seem to be filled with compassion. It seems to be rather straightforward. Well, they've been warned by Moses and the prophets, so they should know. I don't see why they wouldn't know. That's kind of the implication of that. And that's really kind of a straight-up statement from Abraham. They should know. They have the prophets. They have Moses. But the rich man objects, and he says, but, but they will listen if a witness from the dead comes back to tell them. They will listen if a witness from the dead comes back to tell them. Interesting. Uh, now, one thing before we leave the rich man to make sure we understand. He begs Abraham to send Lazarus, and the rich man calls Lazarus by name. 
And remember, Lazarus is the only person in any parable in the New Testament that is named. Now, why is it significant that the rich man calls Lazarus by name? Well, apparently he knew Lazarus. And if he knew Lazarus, he knew before they both died that Lazarus needed help. And the rich man, even though he knew his name, didn't help him. And the sense of the story is that the rich man knew what he had failed to do. And now he begs for a little touch of cool water to help him in the flames, he says. Well, understandable. It's also interesting that it uses the, the parable uses the, the water as something to be longed for. When we also see that same imagery in Psalm 42, you may have sung the chorus even, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. Well, the idea is that there is a thirst for God, and here there is a thirst for relief, parallel the idea of a thirst for help, for the God who can help. So Lazarus is, is there in the, in, in the place of comfort with Abraham. We understand that that's a place vaguely described as a place of comfort, but we don't know whether we would actually say that's equivalent to what people today think of as heaven. Uh, we might say, and, and the, the expression that used there with him being at Abraham's side was kind of an expression like we might say, the person is, has gone to be with the Lord. So after someone dies and, and they're uh, died a Christian, we will often say, well, my friend is with the Lord. And so that's a similar expression to what's being used here. There might have been some reference because of the food reference earlier that to the eschatological banquet. Oh, do you like that? I got to use that word, eschatological. Don't you love those words? Well, there's reference in the scriptures to a banquet at the end of time. And so eschatological just refers to the end of time things. And so that there may be a reference in that to that end of time. Um, and, and Lazarus is enjoying all these good things. And in those days, that would have been totally unexpected because they believed the rich man was blessed and they would have believed the poor man wasn't, especially because Lazarus was not buried. And I mentioned earlier that burial was very important to them in those days. And so the fact that Jesus tells the story and Lazarus is not described as having been buried the people who listened to him tell the story would have immediately assumed that because of Lazarus' terrible shape and not being buried, that he was under God's curse somehow. Well, Jesus definitely explains that that's not the case. And we see a whole different understanding of what's going on after the two men die, one being comforted, one being tormented, all based upon what the rich man did, or should we say, failed to do. Now, to be sure, we don't know what Lazarus did to merit being welcomed into a place of comfort. The, the story doesn't tell us that. We don't know what he did that, that caused him to be welcomed in, that caused, as Jesus said, the angels to deliver him to Abraham's side. We don't know why that is. We have much more of a sense, indeed we have a clear sense, 
And the rich man seems to acknowledge that by his statements that Jesus uh, puts in his mouth in the telling of the story. He, he acknowledges that, that he didn't do what he should have done and that his brothers are repeating the mistake and he needs them to be warned. So we understand the rich man's dilemma that got him into that place. And, and he seems to understand that, that, well, he doesn't say he deserves it, but he seems to accept that, that that's the normal or expected consequence of his behavior. And, and he seems to understand intuitively, I guess, since we don't have the information that Lazarus, uh, was in the right place being comforted because Lazarus had had a hard time. So what's clear is here's a man who had more than more than he needed, way more than he needed, dressed in purple and fine linen, huge banquets. And here's a man who had barely enough to survive. Indeed, he didn't survive. And it's likely that uh, it's likely that he starved to death. And so now the rich man has come to grips with his responsibilities. He's come to grips with the realization that his brothers are in the same sort of jeopardy and need help. And Abraham says, they have the prophets, they have Moses, that's all they need. The rich man says, oh no, 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 you got to send somebody from the dead. That if, they, if they hear from the dead, they have, have a witness that comes from here. And, and we don't know if he was asking for Lazarus to go. We don't exactly know what he wanted the brothers to be told, but it's clear there would be no witness, and it's clear that they had heard enough in the prophets and Moses. And it's clear that we're going to hear more in just a few minutes, but we're going to take a little break, and we're going to think through what's been going on, and then we're going to talk about some of the real takeaways from this story so that we don't make the same mistake as the rich man. I'm Pastor Rick. We'll be back in a minute. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. Let the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, 
From world and political news to societal and cultural stories, six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is where we stretch each other in God's direction, and we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I invite you to trust Him. That's what He wants from us. He wants us to to trust Him, to love Him, to have confidence in Him. And that's what we're trying to help each other with here as we meet week by week on the program, and we stretch each other in God's direction. So we've been talking about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who everybody thought had it made and should expect to to end up in paradise as compared to Lazarus, who was a poor, miserable wretch of a man outside the rich man's house who ultimately starved to death and apparently was cursed by God because there's no indication in the story Jesus tells that he was buried. But they would have thought the rich man would have been blessed by God and go on to great things in the life afterwards. Well, here we find out that pure or or, or poor, I should say, obscure Lazarus is now honored on a level of the Old Testament saints, he's with Abraham, and the rich man finds himself in torment. And it's clear from the story and the way Jesus tells it, everybody listening and all of us now would clearly understand that the reason the rich man ends up where he does is because of the way he treated Lazarus. It's even clear that the rich man understands that, and he's not shy about acknowledging it because he realizes he's should have done better, and he wants his brothers warned to not come to that same place. And the story, Abraham is is the character that makes the statement. The story has this most chilling statement that I've seen it for a long time. I've thought about this for a lot of years, but it gets to me every time when when I look at this passage and when I think about this. Abraham, and really, there's no small uh, reminder to any of us, speaking as, as God's representative, says this to the rich man, referring to the rich man's brothers, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And isn't it remarkable, isn't it remarkable, the irony and the joy when we realize that what was denied the rich man and his brothers in the story is now given to you and to me, a warning from someone who rose from the dead, who returned from the dead. That's the great, great good news of resurrection. Jesus' resurrection changes everything and validates everything. But just as this verse tells us, Many people still reject and do not embrace Jesus, even though resurrection provides the evidence the rich man said people needed. And, and that's chilling. That's absolutely chilling. Uh, but, but the other thing that the chilling realization is that uh, Abraham, God speaking through Abraham in this story, says that the Bible is enough. Abraham says, Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. What else do they need? They need to follow what they say. 
That's true today. I mean, we have Moses and the prophets and more. We have the words of Jesus. It's enough for us to know what we need to do and what God expects. And, and that's a chilling realization because people are all the time wanting to turn the Bible into something it's not or to explain away something important the Bible says. And we need to come to grips with the, the Bible tells us what we need to know to do what God expects. Very important for us to get that. Those two realizations, they just they just get my attention. I hope they get yours. That we have been blessed to have a witness return from the dead, and still people refuse to believe. We have been blessed. We have the Bible and its multiple English translations. There's one you can read and understand to know what God expects to understand the good news that God wants you to pledge allegiance to him and follow him to change your life and start living the way he says to live. And that will get us where we want to be. And if we don't, parable is quite clear. If we don't, we'll end up with the same fate as a rich man. See, another important lesson that we should get out of this, and, and it's partly out of the context of those times, they had a lot of confidence in in wealth and believing that wealth was a blessing of God. But the parable clearly says that having confidence in wealth as your financial security or as your ultimate security is no security at all. The parable is admonishing us to serve our neighbors, not depend upon our wealth to get us where we want to be. The parable is clearly a warning to the rich. How you live today will be judged. And there will be consequences, and those consequences are serious. Now, I don't know how you define rich. That's important because most of us, in fact, I don't know anybody. I, I might know some people that could do this. Maybe they do it. I just don't know it. But I don't know anybody that puts on an ostentatious display of wealth or ostentatious, I should say, display of wealth like the rich man did. Did nobody puts on that kind of display that I'm aware of? There may there probably are some people in the world that do that. I just don't know them personally. So clearly that is a huge warning to those people. But I also think that aside from great displays of wealth, notice that the rich man knew Lazarus' name. And you know, it would be well for us to think about if we know someone by name that needs our help and that we need to help. You know, Lazarus was clearly in his condition, in his place, in his predicament, because he couldn't control life. There was nothing he could do to help himself. He was, he was stuck. You and I know there are people in, in our lives who get themselves in bad predicaments because they do really dumb things, okay? But if we know someone who's turning their life around, or who is just in the bad spot because of things that happened that they couldn't control, and we know their name, doesn't that call out to us to help them in some way? Doesn't that call out to us to remember we know their name? We know enough to know what they need and how we can be helpful. We don't want to give people help that hurts them. Sometimes that happens. Okay, I get that. We get, There are always... I, I don't don't like to put it this way, but it's pretty pretty well understood and pretty plain. There are always bloodsuckers in the sea of life. Okay, we're not talking about those kind of people. 
Those people, the New Testament talks about them in other places. We're here talking about people who genuinely have a need that we can meet and should meet because we know their name. The other interesting thing that that comes out of this is a connection to another Bible story in Genesis. You probably remember the story of Cain and Abel. And you remember how um, Cain kills his brother, and God comes looking for him and and asks, "Where's your brother?" And Cain asks a rhetorical question. You probably remember it even before I state it. Cain says, "Am I my brother's keeper?" And clearly this parable answers that question. Doesn't give us all the information about every question we might have about the story. I get that. I don't know that any single story in the New Testament answers every question we might have that it surfaces, but it does surface this. That if you have a neighbor and you know the neighbor's name and that neighbor has a need, then we have a responsibility to help in in whatever level we can. We may not have the resources the rich man had to be able to provide that level of of help. I get that. But what can we do? And the failure to to do what we can do is what God will hold us responsible for. So don't go away from this parable without coming to the conclusion that, yes, we are our brother's keeper, and yes, we need to serve the people around us in whatever way we can. And it may not be with money, but we need to serve the people around us. Well, I have been thinking again, and uh, I guess we should take a few minutes to go through some of those thoughts. I promised that I would if I had time, and I'm confident we have plenty of time. And I want to think about these 10 things, and, and I do this partly because I want to prod you to be thinking about some things, and partly because I hope maybe on the odd chance that you may have already been thinking about one or two of these things that i kind of processed in my brain. Uh, you don't want to live in my brain, but I'm going to give you a little insight by these 10 things. And so let's tackle them and see what, what's been going on. First thing of, of 10 things I think is, I think people often think forgiveness is a benefit to the person forgiven. In reality, it's more of a benefit for the person who forgives. Whoa, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. We were not meant to carry the consequences of sin. We were not created for that. When God created the heavens and the earth, he did not create sin along with them. Sin was something that we, by our own foolishness and nonsense, brought into the world. And so consequently, we bear the consequences, the discomfort, the burden, we could say, of sin, but it wasn't what God had in mind. And so when we forgive, then we are letting go of that which results from a harm or hurt, uh, an injustice of some kind, and we are laying that down, and we are allowing the grace of God to break the power of that injustice in our lives. By forgiving the perpetrator, it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't unwind the damage necessarily. It just takes the weight of that damage off of us. And Jesus is more than happy to bear that because that's what he went to the cross for. We often think that when we forgive, it lets that sorry rascal off the hook. 
Well, in a sense it does because we let him off our hook. That's the power of forgiveness. It lets the sorry rascal off our hook. Now, if the sorry rascal legitimately sinned against us in some way, then they have to answer to a higher power, a higher authority. It's way over our head. And so they're not getting off the hook entirely. It's just we're free of that agonizing burden of resentment and desire for revenge because we forgive and the hatred can be drained off of our heart. Yeah, I said hatred because that's what it is a lot of times. We don't think of it that way. But if we're honest, that's often what it is. I also think related to, to this whole idea of forgiveness is another concept, and we, we, make, we make a connection here without really thinking it through. So I'm convinced that forgiveness is not reconciliation. There are many people that you can forgive that have no interest in being reconciled to you. What they did, they may have done intentionally, purposefully, willfully in the desire to bring about harm to you. And forgiving them doesn't require you to be reconciled to them. It opens the door to reconciliation if that's something that they want to pursue as well. But forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. So sometimes people think, well, if I forgive the person, then I got to set myself up to get clobbered again. No, that's not what I'm saying. Because forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is simply saying, I'm not holding them responsible for that anymore. I'm not going to hold the grudge. And I'm not going to let the grudge hold me. That's the blessing of forgiving. That's why it's more a benefit to the person who forgives than the person who's forgiven. Because the person who forgives knows they need to let go of it. The person who needs forgiving may be totally oblivious to their need. And until God speaks to them, they may not know at all. And just in case you're wondering, you may never hear them apologize. I talked to a friend recently who heard, got a letter of, an apolo of apology from someone 25 years after the event took place. Well, we both agreed that's very rare and unusual. It's a great blessing for him, but he could still forgive that person without expecting that letter. That was just an added benefit. And what it turns out was the person who was the sorry rascal years ago found out God talked to them. And now there is the opportunity, the possibility, although they're separated by a lot of geography, a lot of real estate, of reconciliation, but it's not required because the forgiveness had been given years before. Third thing I think is that too often we pray for God to get us out of unpleasant situations. More often we should pray for strength. Now, I'm not going to ask you to fess up to this, but I think there's a whole lot of us that every time we find ourselves in a jam or an uncomfortable place, first thing we do is pray for God to get us out of it. Well, I wish he would, at least I wish he'd get me out of those situations. And, and truthfully, I wish he'd get you out of those situations. But it doesn't always happen that way. Life just doesn't work that way. And so I think that a lot of times, instead of just spending our time agonizing that God would get us out of this bad situation, we should pray that God will give us strength to find our way through it, to be the person he wants us to be in spite of the difficult time. Pray for strength. I think we're going to need it some more than we expect in our lives. I think we should get in that habit now 
so that when we really need it, we will have learned how to pray. Any takers on that? Hope so. Fourth thing I think is that we unnecessarily limit ourselves. We so often think, I just can't do that. And and I've heard people say that about forgiveness, and and, and I don't doubt that they're sincere and that they mean what they're saying, but but we limit ourselves by assuming we can't. And, and I want to encourage you, if there's something God is nudging you to do, just try. Just try. Uh, why, why are you reluctant to try? What's the worst thing that can happen? You can fail miserably? Well, I doubt if that's going to happen. It could. But if God is really in it, he's trying to help you. And so we need to, to not limit ourselves. And, and I would add one more thing. If you're afraid to try, maybe that's all the more reason you should try. Now, if it's not in an area where you are gifted and you know that God has not given you gifts to do that, then it, whatever you're feeling is not from God. But if God has given you the gift or has put you in a responsibility where you have to accomplish this task or face up to this reality, whatever it is, then we should not limit ourselves by saying we can't. If God wants us to, then he can help us. And we just have to discern carefully that he wants us to. But so many people limit themselves by, by what should I say, giving way to despair much too quickly. So let's not do that. You see, that's, that's the fifth thing that I think. Much of my life as a pastor has been the experience of having to do the things I did not know how to do. Now, you might say, well, that's really peculiar. I thought you're supposed to learn a lot. I said, well, you learn a lot of things when you study. You learn a lot of things from being around people and experience and observing and hearing from other people. You learn a lot that way, both formally and informally. But over and over again, it happens less and less now because I've had it happen so many times in the past. I've had things come up that, that I had to do and I didn't know how to do, so I had to figure it out. There was just no other way forward on that. Um, an example. I didn't grow up in the age of computers, but I've had to learn how to use them. I mean, I couldn't function in the world today without it. So I've learned. I've just had to lean into that and press into that and and try and learn. And, and little by little, I have. I'm no, no expert. Don't, don't expect that. I'm not saying that. But we have to do sometimes things we didn't expect to have to do. And it's okay. We should just try. I think number six, that fall is a glorious time in the Midwest. Living in Florida, we do have a little bit of fall, people say. It's not hardly noticeable, if you ask me. But I remember fall in the Midwest, and all of you who, wherever you live, from north to south to east to west, wherever you live, and the temperature's beginning to change, and you're having cooler weather, and the leaves are changing, enjoy it. Fall is a wonderful time of year. And uh, I can't do it this year, but... There's going to be a time that I'm going to try to make a trip in the fall again and ex and enjoy some of that, the crunch of leaves underfoot, the smell of someone burning leaves someplace. I'm going to try to get out of raking leaves. I'll be honest with you on that one. But fall's great, and I think you all should enjoy it. If you're having fall where you are, enjoy that for me. Uh, pretend you're, you're, uh, you're sharing the joy and that I'm enjoying it with you as much as you're enjoying it. Number seven of the 10 things I think is that when we speak the truth, we are often misunderstood, but we need to speak the truth anyway. It's very easy when we say something that's true that people don't find easy to accept for them to not really hear what we're saying in the first place, because they get distracted by, by the um, irritation of what we're saying, by 
the realization they have to face up to what we're talking about. And so if you have friends like that, or if you find it difficult sometimes because you're afraid you'll be misunderstood, speak clearly, communicate effectively as much as we can. That's what we need to do. But even if you're afraid you might be misunderstood, go ahead and speak up. I think we need to speak the truth anyway. What I think, number eight, much of our culture's confusion, much of the confusion that we're going through right now comes from one simple but profound error. Too many people have decided there's no truth we can count on. They have decided there are no solid facts we can rely on. And so since there's no truth, no facts, we can make up whatever we want and call it true. Isn't that what's happening to a certain extent, maybe to a great extent with the gender confusion? If we can't believe biology, and if there's nothing that's true except what we decide to call true, then we can try to do whatever we want, even though it's not true. Well, I think that's the confusion what, that many people have. They've, they've bought into this idea that they can define things the way they want to, but when their physical body tells them they are male or tells them they are female, there's a disconnect there, and they don't know how to reconcile that. And we need to get people back to the realization there is truth we can depend upon. The ninth thing I think, politics is worse than you think it is. And some of you are laughing now, and, and you should, but it's true. I'm aware of some situations because of being involved in our community. It's way worse than you think it is. Maybe that's why Jesus said to pray for those guys and ladies. Uh, and, and it's much worse than you think, so pray for them. But number 10, just because it's worse than you think, is no reason to abandon your citizenship responsibilities. You and I still have a responsibility. We live in a country that's of the people, by the people, and for the people, and we still got to live up to those responsibilities. We still need to evaluate candidates, and in November, we still need to go vote and make our voice known. The most important thing we can do is vote, and the next most important thing we can do is be involved day by day. When we vote, we choose the people that will make decisions. And then we need to be involved and say to them, look, we chose you because we expected you to do the right thing. Now do the right thing. So we do have citizenship responsibilities. And if you're always concerned, and sometimes we are, I, I understand that. When you're, you're concerned that you don't have good choices and you say, I always had to vote for the lesser of two evils. Let me change that concept for you. I think I've mentioned it before on the program. We're not voting for the lesser of two evils. evils. You need to look and vote for the person, man or woman, for the person, for the candidate that will lessen evil. Which candidate will lessen evil? We can do that. We can begin to move in the right direction. And maybe little by little, we can have better candidates as well. Well, I said I had 10, but I really have one more because I want to make sure I don't overlook this. And, and I didn't have the time, I have other responsibilities to watch the funeral for Queen Elizabeth earlier this week. I've read some news stories about it, and I've uh, watched a few clips online from it. I read a re very insightful article the other day about it, and and I agree with with some of the other observers who have who followed it much more closely that this funeral that she helped plan was a remarkable Christian testimony, and we need to give thanks for that. We need to acknowledge that and give thanks. 
And I was really struck by one of the hymns that she chose for her funeral service, a testimony to all of us. It's a Charles Wesley Hill lo hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. The first stanza goes like this, Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. Boy, I'd say that's, that's a worthy prayer for all of us. And if your heart is trembling before him, allow him to enter in. But then I was drawn to the fourth stanza of that great hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, written by Charles Wesley. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation, perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Here's a queen who legitimately wore a crown that concludes, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Walk with him, friends, and walk back here next week where we'll talk again. I'm Pastor Rick. See you then.